0: Okay, thanks so much for stepping into that four minutes of family. If you'd like to find your seat in the pew that you started or make a new friend and sit somewhere else, you're welcome to do that. Hey, as you're finding your seat, uh, may I also say thank you to everybody, particularly our community events team that put together such a tremendous trunk or treat. So thank you guys so much. We had a life-size dragon. We had games. We got my dad to wear a mask, which hasn't happened in 30 years. Um, We had pizza that I think we're still eating. Thank you, uh, Brian and Jesse. Really fun. Uh, We actually even got an email from somebody who doesn't attend Coastline, but has connections here relationally, just thanking us. They brought their little kids and they had such a wonderful time. Um, And so Coastline, thank you for being a family that's learning to love each other well. And thank you for stepping out and being missional and loving those that aren't here yet. Amen? Amen. Hey, I'm super excited uh, for this message today. And I, I really believe that God has something unique that he wants to speak to each one of us. Because it has to do with this topic that we all experience, like it or not, of difficulty. Difficulty, hardship, struggle, strain, maybe even persecution, We've all experienced some level of difficulty in our life, have we not? And it's, what I want to talk about is not necessarily like, okay, how do we respond to it? I want to begin by saying, how do we think about it? How do you tend to think about the difficulty in your life? Whether it be like your appliances all break at the same time, your three cars all break at the same time, you get terrible news at work and you're laid off, Even to the extreme of losing a loved one. I I know that it's a a continuum there that I'm explaining, but that would all be on that, that horizon of experiencing difficulty. And we've all experienced it. And I think we think about it in usually three categories or three buckets. And the first one is that difficulty is something to be avoided. That when it happens in our lives, that you and I do whatever we can to get out of it as quickly as we can. I know that's where I tend to live. I know you might think, oh, you have an MDiv and you're a pastor, and so you must immediately think, like, oh, Jesus is involved in this. I am just as human as you, and when difficulty comes, I'm like, where do I find the lane of comfort? Right? Some of us experience difficulty and we begin to, we turn it inward and we, and we think, "When? why does this always happen to me? We're kind of the Linus character. We always feel like we have a, a rainy cloud that just hangs over us and our life and everybody else is living like the California sunshine dream. Maybe that's the bucket you put it in. It's kind of a, it always happens to me. The other place that I've seen us go as a community when we experience difficulty is this reality that we feel that somehow we're responsible, that our past or previous actions have made us responsible for the difficulty that we're experiencing, that somehow I've done something wrong, or somehow I'm guilty in this, that God must be upset or mad at me. So what bucket do do you tend to live in? And Where we're going to go tonight, we have a short passage. I don't know why we did this to you, Hunter. We gave Hunter 66 verses. I got five. Which, however we laid out Acts, I was the winner in this. But we have five verses, and they're really significant. They're really impactful, and I'm excited to break them down for us. Because I think we're going to see from Scripture and from a man of faith who has walked before us. He's gonna shed light on this question of how are you and I to really think about difficulty and struggle in our life. He's gonna give us some insight to see that the gospel has power to carry us through that difficulty, and even do more than that, to break down the limitations that we put on God, and even more than that, to bring us to a place of joy, and a place of joy for others. And so, with that, would you stand with me, and I would like to read Acts chapter 8, 4 through 8. Luke pens this. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went, Philip went down to the city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the opportunity, the privilege of studying your word this week. Lord, thank you that you have something very unique for each one of us that are listening, uh, Father, both live and online. Lord, that your word does not return void, that you want to plant something in us in this time and allow it to continue to grow in us as we interact with you. And so, Father, we pray that as we've worshiped you, that our hearts and minds might be opened to receive what you have in store for each one of us. We pray that your authoritative word to us Lord, would bear fruit in us in this time. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. So it begins here in verse 4 and tells us that those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And it's this idea that the followers of Jesus were both scattered and sent. They were both scattered and sent, and what I mean by scattered is this idea that I've been talking about in the intro of extreme difficulty or hardship, suffering, and persecution. See, the context of them being scattered comes back from chapter 8, verse 1, where it tells us Saul approved of them killing him, talking about the stoning of Stephen, Stephen had just been stoned. He had just been killed. And it says, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And so this scattering is real. The difficulty is extreme. The struggle is intense. It has moved to the point of persecution. Now, I know that the Bible gives us kind of the G-rated version of the stoning of Stephen. If you you listen in uh, the end of Acts chapter 7, you see that what takes place is that uh, Stephen, as he's being stoned, he falls on his knees, he cries out to God and says, forgive them, and then it tells us that he falls asleep. Well, the reality of what's taking place there is that the Sanhedrin, the ruling authorities, don't like his message that Jesus is the Messiah and they're responsible for killing him. So they drag him out as like a raging mob. And as they're doing it, they're pelting him with rocks. I believe they tied him up and then they basically crushed his bones with heavy rocks. It was a public killing. It was extremely violent. It was excruciating for Stephen. And the reason I go into that violence and detail is is the reality that this is a moment of deep trauma for the church. Because don't forget who Stephen is. He's he's picked out from the seven to take care of the, the widows. And we're told that he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he's filled with wisdom. And then as he begins his ministry, you see that he preaches powerfully. And that the word of God, the God is alive in him and working. And he's performing signs and miracles that you saw in the apostles. And so the church had to be excited that, wow, this isn't going to be just an apostle thing. This isn't what, man, if you walked around with Jesus for three years, you got these great gifts to perform on Christ's behalf. Here was a Greek-speaking Jew who was waiting tables that God elevated and used mightily. And see, it had to be such good news for them, and yet in the killing of Stephen, what tragic news as they're so excited about who this young man is going to be. They say that he's filled with grace and power in 6, chapter 8. In seven fifty five before he dies, he has a vision of God seated in heaven and Jesus at his right side. And yet it's a brutal death and a tragic loss for the church. And as we're told in eight chapter 8, verse 2, they mourn. They mourn deeply. And maybe the most tragic thing in all of this is we're told in 8, 1 that, that Saul approves of this killing That this violence, that they don't actually have the right. Because remember when Jesus was crucified, the Sanhedrin, the religious Jewish class had to go to Pilate to get Pilate's approval to send Jesus to death. They didn't have the right to put Stephen to death. It was a mob that just grabbed him and started chucking rocks at him. That was what took place this tragic loss that they experience. And you'd think that, man, maybe they would wake up and go, oh my gosh, this violence is appalling. And instead, you see that they're applauding. They're applauding this violence. And so Paul seizes the moment and begins to drag out Christians, brothers and sisters from their home, trying to destroy the church. You're told in Acts chapter 5 that as the apostles are going, they're building the church from house to house to house. Faith is expanding from house to house. God is on the move from house to house. And here's Saul coming from house to house to try to destroy what God is building. And yet what's so fascinating is that the more he tries to snuff out the church, the more it gets fanned into flame. So this great persecution breaks out. And in the midst of this persecution, in the midst of these difficult circumstances, not only are God's people scattered, but then they're sent. See, God is at work in this moment. He's allowed it, and he has a purpose behind it, that the church would move outside of Jerusalem into that next phase that he talks about in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. That you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And then where? Judea and Sumeria. God is going to use this tragedy to send his people out. And as you're told in verse 4, that everywhere they go, they begin to preach Jesus the Messiah to anyone who will listen. So they're scattered, but they're also sent. And from that, I want to highlight a couple important ideas for us this afternoon. The first one is that out of this devastating experience for the church, for the trauma of losing a brother who has been faithful in the Lord, and then this uptick of this crazy violence happening through Saul, out of this devastating experience comes this spring of good news. For out of this persecution comes the advance of the good news of the gospel. It's what Luke wants us to see here, that yeah, God's people— They're experiencing hardship and this great persecution, and yet everywhere they go, they're preaching the word wherever they went. See, I don't know about you, but when I read that, it reminds me that in the difficulty of my life, God is still at work. And as I might feel scattered by the circumstances of my life that I even live this week, God can spring forth a kingdom goodness that I can't even think of or imagine in the moment. This is why you have statements like Joseph. If you remember at the end of Genesis 50, 20, he says, look, all these things that happened to me, my own brothers selling me into slavery and abandoning me, me being stuck in jail for a very long time, being accused of something I did not do, man intended for evil, but God intended for good. Or maybe it's the way Paul wrote it in Romans eight twenty eight. God works for the good of those who love him who are called according to his purpose. I've highlighted it before. I'll highlight it again that God works for good for those who love him. I don't know about you, but I wanted to say God works for the comfort of those who love him. But God's not about our comfort, he's about good, and he can make good out of what seems terrible or bad to us. You know, I had this life experience over the last couple weeks where a dear sister of mine that I know from our previous church, uh, I, I sat with her about four years ago when she was first diagnosed with cancer, sat and prayed with her and her husband, and then I went out to Duarte where she was getting surgery, uh, spent some time with them, and then I got a call a few weeks ago saying, hey, the surgery's really back. I kind of lost contact with COVID, and I came in and I spent some time with them, and man, her body was just ravished with cancer. And anybody who has seen the, the tragedy of what cancer can do to somebody That's what it was. And I'm not here saying that, oh, man, that that cancer is a good thing and that sitting with this gentleman whom I love who ultimately lost his wife of 35 years to cancer. I'm not saying that as Christians we get to run around and saying, oh, look, that's good. But we are a people who can say that in the midst of the tragedy, God continues to be faithful. Faithful. In the midst of the struggle and the hardship, even if yours isn't of the caliber of cancer, even when it's a broken car or a broken appliance or a broken job or a broken relationship, whatever it might be in your life that is broken, that is creating difficulty, what we see here is that God is always at work trying to do a kingdom good in and through the bad. And so good can spring up out of difficulty. Here's the other point I want to mention that scattering difficulty and hardship and suffering <laughs> it comes to us unevenly right you know how it rains in Southern California we get all excited like "Ooh, there's forecast maybe you don't I do my family does maybe we live in the wrong state I don't know or maybe because just it never rains here that we can get excited about something falling from the sky. And so when it rains in the South Bay, my family and I get super excited. And then you know how sometimes you get like the mist in PV and then like the torrential downpour in Torrance, and then you get nothing in Harbor City. You ever notice that? You're like, wait, this isn't rain. This is like random mist. that decided to like turn on for 10 seconds and then shut off. That is a good representation of how it feels sometimes of the difficulty and struggle of our lives. That it comes to us unevenly. That some people seem to get a lot of it, and other people seem to get very little of it. And what you and I want most is fairness. When God wants faithfulness. And the situation that you're going to see in Philip, that as persecution has happened, it didn't break fairly. Look with me in 8 verse 1. It says that persecution broke out and all except the apostles were scattered. Wait, so like the 11 plus the 1 got to stay in Jerusalem and then the rest of the disciples, hundreds, maybe thousands of them, all got scattered to Judea and Samaria. Well, why do the apostles get to stay? You see the same thing at the end of John. Remember that story about Peter and John and and Jesus has come back and then he's going to go to the father and he tells Peter, hey, when you're old, someone's going to take you by the hand and take you where you don't want to go, talking about his death that he'd be martyred for Christ? And Peter says, well, hey, what about John? Like, what does John get? If I'm going somewhere where I don't want to go, is John coming with me? And he's like, hey, that's not up to you. If I want John to live forever, what's that to you? Like, what? See, God doesn't care about fairness. He wants us to take our cup of difficulty. And walk with him in a trusting relationship. And to trust that through the difficulty, good news can spring up as we walk faithfully with our heavenly father who is so faithful to us. And then finally this. The believers who were scattered proclaim everywhere they go. They proclaim. Let me highlight. They proclaim. What do they do? What do they not do? complain. I don't know about you, but I am a complainer. I complain. Moment of confession. We're in the church. That's what the church is for. We are confessional people. I complain. Things happen. I don't like them. I complain. I see in Philip this, he has to leave Jerusalem, and he's going into a new city. He's losing all that he knows from behind him and launching into this running for his life. And he's not complaining, saying, Oh my gosh, they just killed Stephen. Oh my gosh, I've got to leave Jerusalem and I'm now going to where? Samaria? Are you kidding me, God? See, he proclaims he doesn't complain. Now, there is room to complain for those of us following Jesus. Amen? If you can't get an amen, that it's biblical to complain, I don't know when you can get an amen. Because it is. I mean, you have the whole book of Psalms where David does a lot of complaining before the Lord, and you have a whole book, Lamentations, which is a lament is a complaint before the Lord. And so if you are a complainer, you're in good company. But here's the the reality of the Christian life. That our complaining is to be before God. And at some point, our complaining needs to move to acceptance, and then acceptance needs to move to trust. That God, if you don't change these difficult circumstances, I'm going to be okay. Not because I like them, but because you're with me. And you're going to make me okay. And you're going to work a kingdom good that I can't see yet as I just walk faithfully with you and accept the cup of difficulty that you have for me. There's room to complain, but our complaint has to move to acceptance and then ultimately to trust. And as I look up Philip's life, I see him focused on two things that help him do that. He was focused on what he had in Jesus, not what he didn't have. He was so excited that he had Jesus as his Messiah that he didn't go to Samaria and be like, did you understand what the Jews just did? They just killed my brother uh, Stephen. Stephen. And now, this guy Saul is running around putting people in prison. Can you believe that? No, he shows up in Samaria and says, Do you know Jesus? Because this Jesus died and he rose again. In this Jesus, there is power. In this Jesus, there is forgiveness of sins. In this Jesus, you are his son, you are his daughter. There is power in this Jesus. Do you know him? See, I'm so challenged by Philip's life because he chose to say, yeah, I've got reasons to complain. And I'm sure he complained to his heavenly father. But he was focused on what he had in Christ, not what he didn't have. He was focused on what God had done for him, not what man had done for him. That's how we can be a church, a people who can experience great difficulty, and yet trust God to move and work and do good in our context. So let's keep moving here. Out of the scattering, the gospel breaks through limits and unites hearts. Look with me in verse 5. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. Now, sometimes we can read that and be like, okay, cool, this is a transition. Luke's saying, Philip was once in Jerusalem, Persecution broke out, so brother headed to Samaria. Like you and I, like, hey, it's the weekend, I'm going to Palm Springs. Hey, it's the weekend, cruising to Catalina. And we can miss the theological implications of the significance that Philip, in the midst of the persecution, he heads north to Samaria. Samaria. Now, many of you who know your Bible have grown up in church. You know a little bit about the Samaritans and the the broken relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans. Let me give you a quick, like, one to two minute recap. It began by the Jews seeing the Samaritans as traitors. In 1 Kings 12, the kingdom of Jews, they had David as the king, and then Solomon, his son, was the king. And after Solomon, the kingdom was divided in the 900 B.C., And his son, Rehoboam, was the natural line. And then there was Jeroboam, who worked for David. And the kingdom was split along those lines. And the northern kingdom and ten tribes went with Jeroboam. And only Benjamin and Judah, the southern kingdoms, stayed faithful to Rehoboam, who was Solomon's son. And so the kingdom is fractured. And so from that point, there's division between them about who really are God's people and who really is the rightful kingdom of God. And then you get in the 700s when the Assyrians come through, they deport a bunch of the Samaritans and they import a bunch of Assyrians and they intermarry with each other. And so now the Jews look at the Samaritans as like, you're not even God's people. You never were. You were separatists who broke out, and now two, three hundred, four hundred years later, you've intermarried, and you're not a true Jew. You're a, you're a half-breed, ethnically. And to make matters worse, they looked at each other like each side were heretics, because the Samaritans only believed in the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible were the Jews believed in the whole Old Testament, the Jews had their temple in Jerusalem and the Samaritans had their temple on Mount Gerizim. They, they had built their own temple. They had different places of worship. And to make matters worse, through the years, there were scuffles and there, were, there was basically bloodshed between the Jews and the Samaritans. All that to say... 900 years of distrust, 900 years of not liking each other. So they see each other as enemies to the point where John would say in John chapter 4, verse 9, like, Hey, Jesus, what are we doing in Samaria with the woman at the well? Because we're Jews and Jews don't associate with Samaritans. No, oh, we don't do that. Where does Philip go? Philip goes to Samaria. He goes to his enemy. He opens his heart to the people that he's got 900 years of historical animosity with and says, guess what? I love Jesus, and Jesus loves you. And he's the Messiah, the one sent from God. Man, that's challenging. That he would open his heart to his enemy. It's a courageous faith. I love how Willie Jennings says it. He says this. Philip offers us insight into God's love for those at the imagined limits of Israel. And yet the Samaritans are inside Israel. And what captivated my mind as I read that was these imaginary limits that the Jews lived with imaginary limits that this is God's people. Jerusalem, Judea, definitely not Samaria to the north. This is the boundary marker of God's people. And God, through persecution, allows a good kingdom work to happen for the gospel to travel to who they thought were their enemies. God's reach would not be diminished through man's imaginary limits. And what I think I found so challenging this week with that term, imaginary limits, was this idea that Samaria was always within God's plan. It was laid out in Acts 1.8. He said, I'm going to start in Jerusalem, and then we're going to go to Judea and Samaria, and then we're going to the ends of the earth because I love all of humanity. And no one is beyond my reach, regardless of how they live, regardless of what they believe, regardless of how they vote regardless of how they think we should be vaxxed or not vaxxed, or wear a mask or not mask. I mean, you name it, no one is beyond the loving reach of God. That's what Philip teaches us. And as I looked at my own life this week, I thought, man, Garrick, if you're honest, I think you have some imaginary limits here of people that you said, man, God could not reach them. I've had too much difficulty or too much problem or they're way too far from your truth. You could never open their heart. They're beyond. But what's so challenging about Philip is Philip is this living example that that is just not true. That all things are possible with our Heavenly Father, that his reach extends well beyond what you and I could dream or fathom or imagine. So, Maybe it's worthwhile for us to pause for a moment and say, where are your imagined limits? Who do you have on your list as outside of God's people that somehow God through his grace couldn't reach down and touch a mind and a heart that right now is not bent toward his truth, it's not bent toward his will, it doesn't give a rip about Jesus or God or church or the Bible They might even be totally, you know, uh, antagonistic toward any kind of those ideas. Well, so was Saul. And he was pretty adamant about it because he was killing people over it. We're going to see in a few weeks that God had other plans. So what imaginary limits does God need to break through in your life that you could say, yeah, the gospel could work there? Not because of me, but because of the greatness of our God. Our imaginary limits, friends, are just that. They're imagined. In doing so, we limit God's love. We limit the power of the gospel. May we be a people and a church who allow God, through the truth of his word and the power of his spirit, to reshape what we understand as the reach of our gracious and loving God. See, friends, Jesus is in the business of joining hearts. I've been telling you since we started this Acts series that God joins us in Pentecost. God joins us in Acts 2, and then the church joins together in Acts 3 through 8, and now God is inviting uh, others to join in this good kingdom work as Philip is sent out as an evangelist. And it's no accident that Peter and John are sent from Jerusalem later in this chapter. In fact, let me read it for us. In verse 14, so Philip has had this tremendous ministry in verse 6 and 7. Let me read that. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks and impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so... We'll talk about it in a second, but Philip is having this profound kingdom, fruitful ministry. And these Samaritans, those hated by the Jews, the enemy, those outside the bounds of God's loving reach, are now coming to faith in Christ. And so Peter and John as apostles are like, what? I mean, God told them in Acts 1.8 this was going to happen. But being told something's going to happen and then believing it are two different things, right? It's two different things for us when we're told good can spring out of our difficulty and yet it's a hard path to walk that truth. That's what they're having to walk, this reality. And look with me in verse 14 of chapter eight. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there That they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. That they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, God is doing something unique here in Acts 8. Some will argue that this is the proof text for a two-step conversion into Christ. That you and I profess faith and believe in God and are forgiven of our sins, step one. And then step two, we receive the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I don't believe that. I don't believe that's what Scripture teaches. I think what you have here is not the norm. And let me share it with you why. Because there are other places in Scripture that you see that it happens instantaneous. What's taking place here is I think God is withholding the Holy Spirit to get Peter and John down there so that they could see with their very eyes, yep, the Samaritans, your enemy, those you put outside of my love, they're in. They came to faith in Jesus. They're in to help them wake up to that reality. See, it wasn't necessarily a theological thing I think God was doing. It was an interpersonal thing. Because do you remember what Peter preached in Acts chapter 2? Look with me over in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter says, this is the sermon that 3,000 come to faith. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. For all who would... for all." for all whom the Lord, our God, will call. Hey, it's an open call. And I'm sure Peter's like, yes, these are my Jewish brothers. And now God needs to send them down to Samaria and say, that call is even to your enemy. I think there's a reason John had to be there because if you know your scripture in Luke chapter nine, John, (laughs) remember the story? They're traveling through Samaria and Samaria doesn't treat Jesus well. And uh, James and John are like, hey, Hey, Jesus, you've got power. Can we call down lightning and just burn up some people? Right? Let's toast some Samaritans. I make that in jest, but if we're honest, we all have people on our list that we wouldn't mind God doing that. And yet the challenge we see in Philip is to respond in grace the way our Heavenly Father does with us. And says, hey, Look, I'm going to bring them. John, can you not be about their destruction, but can you be about their salvation? And so that's why I believe that God brings Peter and John down and withholds the Holy Spirit so they can see that, yes, this is a work of God, and they can put their blessing on it. And the Samaritans can trust the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, and the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem can see with their own eyes, yes, it's true that God has busted through our imaginary limits. And finally this, out of the scattering comes effective witness. Look with me back in verse 6. It says, When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. And then with these great signs, he, you know, he casts out demons, and he heals the paralyzed, and he heals the sick. And then we pick it up in verse, uh, follow with me in verse 12. It says, But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ... They were baptized, both men and women. Even uh, Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. In the beginning portion of the text, Simon is a sorcerer who has amazed the people. And they're all following him, and they're even calling him Simon the Great. Here comes Philip, proclaiming Jesus Christ and him crucified. And the Samaritans come to faith. And even Simon in all his power comes and I believe, comes with a real faith. It's a little bit mixed up, you'll see later on, but for now it's what he has. And God is at work, and how did God work so powerfully through Philip? Like I look at his ministry and I'm like, man, I'd like my ministry to look like that too. I bet you'd love your ministry at work, at home, at school, to look like that as well. What I see in Philip is this effective example of Witness that he both shared and showed the gospel. That we're told in verse 6 that the Samaritans both heard the message of Jesus Christ crucified and they also experienced it. Now the good news for us is there's no mention of special gifting. There's no mention that Philip, you know, someone laid their hands on him and gave this amazing gift of evangelism that he could go and do these miraculous signs that the apostles could do. I think Philip is just an everyday man. A few months earlier, he was waiting on tables. So what makes his ministry so powerful and so effective as just a regular follower of Jesus with no special anointing? I think it's very simply this. Philip believed that Jesus made a difference. To the extent that he would talk about him And that he would pray and believe that there's power in prayer in the name of Jesus. That's something that I can do. Frankly, that's something that we can do. It's not some special gift of evangelism. It's not some special anointing. It's just this belief that there's power in Jesus. And as I speak about the reality of Jesus in my life, that power goes out. That God can transform individuals. It's enough faith in God to say, I can't fix this person, but I know someone who might be able to, and so I'm going to pray. Can we be a community that believes that Jesus does, in fact, make a difference? That belief in him does impact and bring transformation to our lives? Because that's all it simply took for Philip. And Philip had this tremendous ministry that we're reading about today and we're going to read about next week. And as I look into scripture again and again, I see an average man who believes that Jesus makes a difference and I'm going to have enough faith to pray in his name for the people around me. Friends, if we do that, we will be a community that proclaims Jesus And also shows the reality of Jesus' presence in our lives. And we will bear good kingdom fruit. Philip both shared and showed the gospel. May we do the same. You know, sometimes I think we struggle with this because we think it's our job to win. Have you ever had that experience? Wherever you work, wherever you go to school, wherever you hang out, you you look at the hardness of the people around you and you think, I can't win these people. And so we stop proclaiming and we stop praying. May I remind us that our job was never to win. Our job was to witness. God is the only one who brings the fruit. God is the only one who wins. If we simply believe that Jesus makes a difference and I want to tell you about how he's made a difference in my life, that is our job. I trust that God will show up. In verse eight, in closing, it says this. So there was great joy in the city. There's great joy. Wherever God has planted you, in whatever city in the South Bay you live in, if you understand that the difficulty you experience in your life, God can work a kingdom good. If you recognize that God is at work in your life right now trying to expand your imagined limits, And if you will be simply a person who says, I believe Jesus made a difference and I'm going to pray that it is so. We will be a people who have an opportunity to bring joy to the cities that we dwell in. And the South Bay will be thankful that Coastline exists. Because I believe God has placed Coastline here for such a time as this that we would bring joy to the South Bay as we say, Man, Jesus is real. And praying to him on your behalf is going to make a difference in your life. So friends, as we get ready to take communion, may we be a people who truly believe, man, Jesus makes a difference. And if I walk out of here this week believing that, walking in that, he is going to use me, regardless of the difficulties I face this week, to bring joy to myself and to the people around me. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for the opportunity to learn from Philip's life. Lord, we pray that in this moment that you would speak to our minds, that you would open us up to the reality of the limits that we've put around people around us and how you're seeking to expand those, to break those down. Father, would you help us be a people who truly trust that you're at work And be expectant for you to move around us. God, may we, like Philip, share and show the power of Jesus this week. God, it's not our job to win. Lord, it's our privilege to witness. It's in your name we pray. Amen.